This is the Positive Psychology Podcast, episode 69. Welcome to the Positive Psychology Podcast, bringing your earbuds the science of the good life. And now, your host, Kristen Trumpy. So today, Maria Sirois is returning to the Positive Psychology Podcast. Hello, Maria. Hi, Kristen. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. For those who didn't catch the first episode on authenticity, how would you introduce yourself? Who are you? Well, um, I think there's a, a couple of answers to that. I'm a clinical psychologist. I specialize in teaching positive psychology and resilience. That's sort of my business card introduction. Um, and I'm an author as well, which we're going to be talking about today. But I think, Kristen, what's really important for people to understand is that I'm, you know, I'm a seeker of wisdom and knowledge and inspiration for creating a life that feels like it's my true life and it's a thriving life, even when life is extremely difficult. So I think both those aspects of myself are, are uh, important. If I may introduce interject before we get started properly um dear listeners that's precisely why i love positive psychology so much that a lot of people um like maria they really walk the talk they really try out stuff and they're they're searching for something and engaging in the journey and it's not just oh it's something that i do from you know nine to five and then i go home and it's over and that's something that i love about this field just wanted to point that out to those of you who don't really know positive psychology too well. So how did happiness after loss come about? Well, I went through one of those periods in life where um, things were excruciatingly difficult. In 2009, 2010, um, my marriage was falling apart. My our, uh, Some financial commitments, um, business that my ex-husband had been involved with, was failing, my children were having a difficult time at school, and I was just beginning to wrap my arms around all of that stress and strain when um, received the, I received the news that my younger brother, who was 48 at the time, had received a stage four cancer diagnosis, and he only lived 10 weeks past diagnosis. So it was like, and life does this sometimes, it sends us, you know, the worst of the worst all at once, and I remember leaving my brother's funeral asking myself, you know, uh, that I try to find a way to let his death, his this loss, this terrible loss, be be a, a turning point for bringing together wisdom about how we survive the cataclysms of our lives well. And so about six months after his funeral, I began to write, and I wrote two really um, pathetic drafts of a manuscript and I just kept persevering persevering and then one day it got clear that what I really wanted to do was a combination of teach and inspire and so the the idea for these very short reflections on the territory of loss and the territory of happiness began to emerge right so how how did you feel that your work up until that point had prepared you 
to deal with something like all of these things at once. Yeah. Well, the, you know, the beautiful irony is that I had started out as a clinical psychologist working with uh, children with life-threatening illness. So I'd had a, quite a bit of experience working with families as they faced the potential loss of a child. Now, my brother was an adult, but still the, a lot of that um, overlap was pretty clear in the kind of shock and the kind of grief and in the kind of um, anger and, and you know, the fact that everybody in a family deals with de death differently and finding room to accept that. All of those were components that I had, you know, paid attention to before on behalf of my client families. And now I was being asked to really live into what I had been teaching at a very profound level. And what I discovered was, and here's the intersection between the field of resilience and the field of positive psychology, is that a lot of resilient strategies um, are tremendously helpful in getting you through and in, in bringing you back to a high level of functioning. And when we add to that positive psychology perspectives and tools, then we can also begin to craft a new, a life that feels like it has wonder and goodness and kindness and awe and beauty in it, even as we're suffering, even as we're grieving. Right. So I was wondering how soon after loss can we even start thinking about happiness? And that's not necessarily a hang-up that I have myself. But right. I've heard, like, some people seem to think it's almost unethical to, to you know, don't dare to be happy. Like, you have to observe, like, some kind of period of mourning or something like that. Yeah. Um, what do you think about that? Well, I, you know, I, I love this question because one of the myths that I address in the book is that there is a time frame to grief. And, and the truth of the matter is how one grieves is unique and, and the time frame for the raw um, periods of grief will be unique to every person. So for example, you know, I, I was 50 when my brother died. I had two teenagers at home. I wanted them to know how painful life can be. I didn't want to hide that from them or deny them from the reality of loss. And, you know, I also wanted them to enjoy their days and feel like they're, you know, they still had a mama who was present to them. So there was a tremendous impulse to, you know, nourish small parts of the day in such a way that we could laugh when it was natural or we could celebrate something when it was natural. So what I, I think the biggest learning, Christine, that I've learned through all the years of paying attention to resilience and to my own growth and experience is that in any one day, there is suffering and there is goodness. There is pain and there is healing. There's wonder and there's um, uh, woundedness. And when we, if we can live into the and, that place where we allow both to exist at the same time, then we find that the waves of grief are not necessarily so um, horrifically, worrisomely long. And we find that the uplifts, we don't hold on to them so ferociously because we know it will appear again. You know, we don't have to worry about whether a good, a sweet moment will come again or a beautiful moment will come again because we begin to live into the intersection of both of them. I hope that makes sense. It does. I, I like to highlight that that sentence that I found quite beautiful. You have to live in the and. 
in exactly. the both. Could you talk a little bit more about that? Because I think, especially in Western culture, we are so much focused on logic. It's either this or that, that I think right. a lot of people, even if they see the point of doing that, they might not even know where to start. What do you right. think about that? Well, it's interesting. The notion of the and um, came, as I understand it, from sort of two separate dis disciplines. Um, Parker Palmer, who's a world-famous educator of educators, talked about how we tend to think the world apart into black and white or either-or thinking, like you just said, and that the best teachers in the world help their students live into the paradox. You know, I, I can be... Um, I can struggle with writing essays, and yet I have something meaningful to say, meaningful to offer. I can be um, shy about making new friendships, and yet I matter, you know, to live into the and. The same notion emerged from the field of, of business and corporate consulting in, in a book, a famous book by Jim Porras, and I forget his colleague right now, called Built to Last. He looked at that, the most, some of the most successful businesses you know, long-lasting, sustained uh, trajectories of success were those in which the executive leadership teams and CEOs were able to live into the and. You know, we can stay true to our mission and innovate. We can hold fast to our principles and um, find new ways of doing things, etc. And so positive psychology has really embraced this notion of the and in terms of facing, you know, everyone suffers, everyone is in pain. No one day is perfect, no human being is perfect. There are parts of ourselves we don't love and life is magnificent and we each can strive for excellence and our lives are worthy anyway even as they've been broken and scarred and wounded. Right, so could you take us a little bit deeper into an approach. I mean, I'm not expecting you to give away like yes. your whole book or anything, but yes. but what what is the approach that you recommend when something big happens? Yeah. Well, in the the first half of the book is is written from the reflections around loss, and I, one of the first things I say is that in order to rise again eventually, and again, you know, eventually grief will certainly take us down for quite a while, but to rise again eventually, we first need to face or come to accept the fact that there is a choice. There is a choice in terms of how we spend our day, where we put our energy, who we surround ourselves with, what we nourish ourselves with or don't. There are choices in every moment of every day. And then the second suggestion is to breathe into whatever suffering we're experiencing, to truly feel what we feel and think what we think and not try to deny it or soften it or... Um, you know, um, block it, but truly breathe into the moment as it is. And the beautiful paradox, here's another and, is as soon as you truly allow yourself to feel the sadness or the worry or the anger or the grief or the bitterness, as soon as we really allow that to exist, it begins to dissipate and room becomes created emotionally and mentally for new ways of being and new ways of moving in the world. So you mentioned we shouldn't block things. So a lot of medication is designed to do just that. So so what do you think about, you know, 
traditional approaches to loss and, yeah. you know, problems in general, you know, drug, be yeah. drugs or, or, you know, classic psychotherapy or yeah. how yeah. does that fit together with what you advise us to do? Right. Well, I, I think of medication a little differently. Um, it, it, certainly in some cases, um, it's helpful to to block a, um, a, a part of our neurochemistry, but that, that's pretty rare. Mostly what medication attempts to do is to help stabilize a chemical balance so that we can uh, first achieve some respite either from depression or anxiety, for example. And then once respite has been created, then we can begin to um, actually practice new strategies or new ways of thinking. But, you know, there are some, there, and this is also where positive psychology can be helpful. You know, once, once we've had the medication that helps us re- achieve a sort of steady state where there's enough vitality and just enough optimism in the system, then we can bolster that by using approaches that, that move us forward. So you asked for a specific tool. So one of the specific practices that um, we articulate in the positive psychology world has to do with, you know, looking for the good and savoring the good. So actually practicing, perhaps you could go to sleep every night and before you close your eyes, ask yourself, what was the best moment today? And if that simple tool, if you practice that 30 nights in a row, you begin to realize every day has a best moment. Sometimes it's as simple as a cup of coffee. Sometimes it's as profound as... Um, you know, the perfect hug from a, the perfect friend. And y- so you begin to notice that every day has a best moment. And then because you're practicing this tool, you start going into the day looking for good. And what you begin to see is that kindness exists every day. Um, sweetness exists every day. Laughter exists every day. Joy exists every day. And once you begin to understand that both woundedness and suffering and darkness exist and light and healing and goodness exist in every day and you begin to see more of that you actually begin to attune your own vision and your own neurochemistry towards savoring the good right so yeah that all of course makes a lot of sense from a positive psychology perspective what i'm wondering about is do you think there's anything we can do on a more you know on a group-based level because a lot of the times positive psychology talks about stuff that individuals can do and i'm a big believer in that so don't get me wrong about that but i also wonder when i see movements as in for example now you guys are having elections soon so so you see there's just a lot of there's a lot of you know like really anger around on all kinds of sides now do you think that the the concepts that you talk about are applicable in a bigger in a bigger way, you know, beyond the individual, and if so, in what way? Well, here's what's interesting. At its basic root, positive psychology is the study of human beings at our best, like who we are when we move closest to our ideal self, to our values and our behaviors that actually benefit us, but all of humanity as well. So I, I certainly can imagine that one day there, there could be a conversation in the political arena about what it means to bring forward uh, dignity, integrity, respect as one is going through the election process. Certainly um, the conversations that are happening in the business world now around positive psychology and leadership have to do with 
you know, executives and managers learning to be authentic, find a way to be authentic, engaged, optimistic, and realistic while helping their teams become their best, most productive, engaged, optimistic, and authentic teams. So the conversations are beginning to certainly happen at large group levels. Uh, David Cooper Ryder, who uh, teaches a field of a, uh, a kind of um, a way of approaching business consulting called appreciative inquiry, which is very much in alignment with positive psychology. He he was asked and brought to the United Nations for the first ever international conference on executives from around the world. Four hundred, I think, uh, organizations were there to talk about bringing this work through their corporations. Um, education has begun to take positive psychology on, and we're looking certainly at the impact on classrooms, on groups of students. So absolutely, this is absolutely applicable for teams and groups as well as for the individual. I'd like to the listeners to take note of that because it's easy to sit there and think like, wow, Maria's doing a great job and, and Kristen is doing a good job disseminating positive psychology in the world, but the message really is that it's it's all of us who can do it. I mean, we don't have to all have studied it, what we're talking about. If we practice these things in daily life and at work and when we do politics or whatever it is that we're doing, then we can all contribute to to a world that's different in a way. So I get what I can do for myself. What I've also found sometimes a very hard and difficult topic is what do you do with someone who is going through loss of any kind? And I'm sure it's not just about death. It could also be loss of a job or something like that. Yeah, I was, I wa I was careful in the book, too. The subtitle is happiness, a short course in happiness after loss. And then the subtitle is and other dark, difficult times. Because you're right, life isn't just hard through loss. It's also hard through disappointment or sometimes we experience loneliness or a sense of exile and um, those can be very difficult times to navigate through so um, I think what's really important for people to understand is that happiness and resilience are choices they're not something that's God-given or uh, loaded in our DNA we, we may have a DNA or a neurochemistry that leans more toward optimism and savoring the good and generosity and yet that's not the whole story um, what really becomes evident is that the the human beings who are thriving you know to just use big names so that people know the kind of iconic examples like Nelson Mandela and Malala Yousafzai you know they they consciously shape their days toward what helps heal their suffering and what helps lift their uh, minds and their hearts and their spirits and any one of us can do that every single one of us has a, a um, invitation and a right to a life that feels as though it is true and um, hopeful and and kind and it turns out that if we sit and we wait for that to happen as if you know we're just um, life owes us something, then we never really find that place of thriving. But if we actually begin to be the agent of our own life, there's a, a reflection in here called 
Where the Hell is That White Horse, where I talk about that rescue fantasy that many people have, you know, that if only the right person would come along, then suddenly my life would be okay. The right boss, the right friend, the right um, partner, or boyfriend or girlfriend. And the truth of the matter is you can have a lot of the right people in your life and still be miserable. Yep. So, yeah, it really does come back to personal accountability. So, but what can you, I mean, I, if, if somebody's really suffering, I, I don't see how, how if I remind them of personal accountability, how that's helpful. You know what I mean? Like if something just happened, like maybe yeah. literally a week ago. Yeah. Well, let you... me give, yes, let me give you a great example. So Viktor Frankl, who was uh, in the Holocaust in three, three years in Auschwitz and uh, I think two other camps, lost everybody but one family member. He literally, he writes about a day, Kristen, when he literally realized that he was tired of being consumed by what he called the small questions, like, will there be enough to eat today? Or will I have enough clothing? Or will the guard beat me? He was so tired of hearing himself consumed by that, that he decided that whenever he heard himself thinking along those lines, he would turn his mind toward imagining one day standing in front of a classroom of students and teaching them about how we survive the holocausts of our lives intact. Now, he didn't deny how much pain he was in. He didn't deny the horror of Auschwitz. He didn't um, go into fantasy, for example, or become psychotic and lose touch with reality. He just chose to begin shaping his thinking periodically throughout the day towards something that gave him meaning and a sense of uplift. Nelson Mandela, 27 years in prison, talked about how he was careful to read biographies and essays on great leadership so that he could um, move away from the emotions that were consuming him of you know, anger or sorrow or worry and so on. So again, it's, it's, it's about understanding that if I'm in great pain, I owe myself the experience of feeling that pain, of honoring it, of recognizing it, of acknowledging it, and also perhaps choosing for just a few moments a day to also make sure I nourish myself or I'm kind to myself or I look for kindness or I ask for help from others. You know, these small practices that, that really bring us to a place where we are we are so, 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 so sad and, and still moving toward the good. I would like to encourage people to actually start doing that before. I've noticed there's this thing that death and loss and all of these difficult situations, they tend to act as, you know, something that ignites people wanting to change. And... I don't know about you, but I felt that when things were really, really difficult, I didn't necessarily have the energy or the other resources intact to start reimagining myself and doing all of these things at that moment. Mm. So I found that when when my father died, it was I was just so grateful that I had been doing all of these things before and they were resources like like a little treasure chest mm. and and i and i could basically fall back on habits which which need you know you frankly just need so much little 
energy to go through with habits, but you need a lot of them if you're trying to establish them. So I really want to encourage people to not wait for, for a strategy to get moving. Get, get moving before when you're, when you're feeling neutral or good, because then you, you can actually... You, can, you actually have a shot at this and you, you will still feel really sad and all of these things. That, that doesn't mean it's not going to happen, but I feel that it will just work out so much better. Yeah, beautifully said, Kristen. So what we want to do is study the practices of resilience and positive psychology. You're right. When life is kind of stable or boring or just mildly stressful or even moderately stressful so that when the intense excruciating dark moments come we we already have these habits in place so by the time i was 50 and i suffered you know all of those great assaults in the same year and a half period i had already had a meditation practice i already had a practice of um, repeating to myself that I loved myself whenever I felt bad about myself. I already had a practice of knowing that I can't do life well alone. I need help. So I had a practice of calling on a therapist when I needed to or leaning on my friends. And I also had a practice, and this is something I, you know, like 15 years ago, I stopped watching the nightly news because it was so depressing and, and upsetting. And I started instead in the evening, a couple times a week, looking for great videos or inspiring talks and you know found that that was uplifting but I also began to have a series of images in my mind about the goodness in the world and that was sustaining when the darkness came thank you for elaborating on that do you do you still have a few minutes because I, I just I didn't remember to ask you when you have to dash off so yes I have a I have five more minutes five more minutes okay so just briefly we somehow managed to get through this whole big topic and we didn't touch, at least not directly, by mentioning it on spirituality and or religion. Right. So for many people, religion and spirituality are a territory of, of great connection and great meaning, um, pleasure and a sense of community and belonging. And so that is very important. The, the trick with religion and spirituality is you have to actually practice it in order for it to, to provide you nourishment. So um, saying I'm religious or saying I belong to a religious tribe or organization and not actually showing up isn't going to get you much of a boost. Um, so to practice the things that actually engage you spiritually, and that could be anything from you know, going to church, temple, synagogue, mosque, or if your spirit is most enlivened out in the natural kingdom to make sure you get out into the into the world into the woods or the ocean or the fields or the mountains that that nourish you to to actually put yourself in the place where positivity grows um, and the other aspect of spirituality th that you know the best religions or the best of us in religion live toward is a sense of um, accountability and responsibility for nourishing ourselves and also serving the world in some way or serving something a little larger than just ourselves. And so this notion of a meaningful life that connects us to a people or a land or a kingdom like the animal kingdom or the plant kingdom, you know, in such a way that we we, we take care of ourselves by also giving generously or by also being thoughtful beyond ourselves. That's another way to enliven spirituality. 
So it's, it's a hugely important arena for many of us. Thanks a lot. Is there anything else you would like to share about this topic? Um, you know, I, I think for those of you who choose to read the book, and I hope you do, it um, the reflection that I've received back is that what's been helpful about the material is that it 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 speaks about living into this place where we begin to realize that, you know, irrespective of the assaults that come our way from life, we can nourish ourselves, we can care for ourselves lovingly, we can seek out the good, and we can begin to build within us at any time a reservoir of uh, positivity and a repertoire of tools and practices that, that sustain us. And know that you aren't alone on the journey. I think the other experience of people reading the book so far has been a feeling like their suffering has been in some way validated by the suffering that I've experienced or some of the client or student stories that are in the book as well. Yeah, that's probably one of the biggest things that anyone can do. Um, a writer or a poet is just make us feel that that we, we actually not just think in our head we're not alone, but we feel in our body that we're not alone. Mm. Thank you so much for this conversation. I, I enjoy talking to you. I, I actually believe that we could talk about a lot of things and I would yes. always enjoy it. And it would always yes. be very calming. In yes, a way. thank, thank so, you. So. Yeah, thank you so much. I hope you found that insightful. And for me, it's interesting because I tend to, you know, true to the star sign that I am, and I'm not saying that I believe in that, but apparently that was cancers do. They like to retreat into their shell. And that's actually exactly how I work, not even after tragedy or loss, every once in a while anyway. I mean, I'm pretty regularly, I just need to chill out in my shell. So I prefer a more passive approach than what Maria has been talking about when she said that she thinks about accountability and that if that's possible in the concentration camps, then it's definitely possible in all other aspects of life as well. And I think that's one of these examples of living in the end, that it can be true that sometimes you just need to retreat in your shell and not do anything. But that on the other hand, that it's equally true that we need to take charge. And that's really life affirming. It might sound like tough love a little bit, like get your act together. But actually, I think from how I have experienced, Maria, I think it's not about tough love. It's about believing that even if we think we are down and we have no strength left in us, we actually do. And once we start making those decisions, we tap into that, that we are stronger than we think we are. Okay, so it's time for a couple of reviews. We got a few new ones from all over the world. Thank you so much. The first comes from Allergic from the USA. And it says, I've tried a lot of self-help podcasts. This one is by far my favorite. She's very encouraging, supportive, personable. She shares a sprinkle of her own experiences, so it feels like she's with you. Thank you very much, Allergic. I, I'm not sure if I'm reading anything into that, but it sounds like 
that's someone who is really discerning. And I've heard that a lot, that people appreciate the fact that what I talk about is grounded in science. And I actually wanted to take a moment to address this. And this was brought to my attention by an email exchange I had with a fellow podcaster. And she said to me, you know, I will never understand why science is preferred over philosophy as a way to guide our life. And when she said that, I thought, you know, on the one hand, I feel really honored. I, I'm glad that people don't say like, oh, this is the usual self-help, which is maybe a little bit hokey and we're not, you know, that's not helpful and it's more, you know, hot air than anything else. But on the other hand, I want to make really clear that while there are many things that I like about science and I think it's necessary because sometimes it does surprise us and we would otherwise not maybe find out about that if we wouldn't inquire um, very rigorously. I think it's important not to dismiss ideas that come from other sources just because, you know, maybe there were no experiments to prove them because if you think about it there's a lot of things that we do in daily life and we're we're fine with that and it has never been scientifically tested and i i think as someone who people apparently listen to who are maybe a little bit more critical i just wanted to point that out to you like if if someone says oh it's based on philosophy that doesn't mean that it's based on nothing philosophers do a great job of thinking about life and death and all of these issues in a way that we usually don't take the time to do so in daily life. And we're maybe not trained to do so in that way. So as honored as I am by by reviews like this, I just want to make clear that, that it's really important that we stay humble and that we don't elevate science or or shame other kinds of information because that's really not compatible with you know gratitude and all of that and now allergic I hope you don't think I'm talking to you personally I'm not I just I'm very grateful for your review it's just something that was going through my mind even before I saw your review because of that exchange that I had with that other podcaster so I wanted to bring this up now the next review comes from Singapore and it's by Orange SG And it says, thank you, Kristen, for this podcast. I like your way, the crystal clear explanation, wisdom, and insight, and shared as someone who I can relate to easily. Even as someone who has studied positive psychology, I often get new insight from you. And of course, refresh on topics that I forgot. Would love to meet you if you ever come to Singapore. Thank you. Orange SG, just, you know, shoot me an email or let me know your real name or anything so that we can connect because I don't know when I'm going to Singapore, but I have some family there. And it would be great to meet up with any listeners, not just in Singapore, anywhere in the world. I I love to meet people face to face and talk to them about and get to know them because it's weird. You guys know so much more about me than I know about you. So that's why I absolutely am a fan of those kind of meetups and would love to have them wherever I go. So the next is from FP Mello from Brazil 
and I think it's a guy, and he says, running has always been about meditation to me, and this podcast made me add 30 minutes to last month's sessions. That is great, man. I, I'm saying a man because I think it's the same guy who already left a Stitcher review. So if it's you, Flavio, thank you very, very much. If it's someone else, thank you anyway. And hey, are you training on something? You know, are you training for a half marathon or a marathon? Or do you just run to stay healthy? I'm, I'm just wondering because I, I kind of started training a little bit. And uh, I don't want to say too much, but we'll see what happens. And if I can stick to it or not, we'll put all my good psychology knowledge into it. But also, I don't want to force myself too much because yeah i'm i'm slow i like to do stuff slowly and organically and uh but i have a good feeling about this year so let's put it that way running wise then the next review comes from chicago it's from sensu being and it says amazing podcast goes hand in hand with everyday commute on my end has helped me with current issues in my life thank you Really thank you. I wish to meet you one day and have a conversation like this with you. But I know life intermits, so for now, I'll continue to listen. And if there's anything that I can contribute, please let me know. High fives and hugs. I love both of those things, so thank you very much, Sensu Being. And as it happens, I also have family in Chicago. So I, I don't have any plans either for Singapore or Chicago. But, you know... It's especially the U.S. I pass through about every second year just because it's my second home, so to speak. So if I'm in Chicago or heading anywhere else, I will let you guys know. And I hope that you hear the episodes in time and we can actually make these meetups happen. Thank you very much, uh, Sensu Being, for the sweet review. And finally, there's a review from Loneke Zelemeker. Zeilemacher, I'm, I'm sorry, my Norwegian is just non-existent. And it says, I love, in capitals, this podcast. What a great person Kristen is to teach the world to be happier. Listen to Kristen and do what she says. Yeah, I, you know, sometimes at work, I'm just like, yeah, do what I say. It was just so much easier for everybody involved, you know. So Lone totally got that. So, yeah, thanks very much. And, and thank you for the sweet messages you sent me on Facebook. I, I really appreciate them. And... It, it always touches me when I, know, when I know a little bit more about people because, as I've said a couple of times before, it's, you know, I, I can only hope. You know, I hope and I believe in what I'm doing. Otherwise, I wouldn't be doing it. But it's still really nice to have concrete examples of, you know, how this impacts someone. So... That's why I love reviews and personal messages and just talking to people. So thank you very much. And uh, I believe in Singapore and Norway, it was the first review. So thank you very much for those going first in their iTunes store, in their, in their app, in that country. Because iTunes really does split it up in countries. So if you think, oh, this podcast already gets a lot of reviews. I hear them every month. Well, yes and no, because the people in the U.S. are happily writing reviews, and I'm so grateful. But we also have other countries in this world, and there are a lot of countries, like, for example, What's Up Ireland, 
where we don't have any reviews yet or South Africa where which one of those will come first I don't know we shall see now you guys have been a bit hesitant about the audible front and I'm not sure if it's just because all of you already enjoy uh, the cool selection that audible has to offer or whether you might think well there's so much free stuff on the internet why would I pay anyone for anything if I can watch YouTube all day long or listen to free podcasts all day long. And I get you. I mean, a lot of people probably don't have a lot of spare income just to throw around. But I'd like to just put this out there. And this is not just for me. Like, you have to understand that I'm not covering costs or anything. Like, I'm not even, I'm not even close to getting financially back uh, what I get what I put into this podcast and I'm not saying this to whine I'm not whining I'm just it's just for you to understand to get some perspective so that you don't think like oh this is like you know the the podcasters who have a lot of money and yeah they exist but it's not me and um, the reason I like audible is not just because I have been a customer of them since about 2006 the reason I like it is also if you think about it books and books and both and this is both fiction and non-fiction there's so much free stuff but if you if you actually want to live in a world where people can really invest some time into into doing something really well you know not just oh i'm doing it on the fly whenever time permits because i have a full-time job and i have to feed my four children no but if we every time we buy a book or or god forbid even a little bit of music or anything that someone has produced we give them the resources to put more of that out into the world and i want to live in a world where writers and musicians and these people get paid to create what they create because if i think about it we pay other people without thinking about it nobody asks you know a tax expert to do work for free nobody asks any of these people to do anything for free but when it comes to artists somehow we just think like oh you should do you know you should do this photo session for me for free and and that's just something that while i understand it i I just want to make a point that if if we want to live in a world where people can produce things, we have to give them the means to put food on the table. And I'm not saying this just because of Audible. I mean, you can do it in whatever way you want if you don't like Audible because you say like, oh, well, they're, you know, they're an Amazon company and they're already gigantic enough. Fair enough, you know, but I just wanted to put this thought out there that you that you consider supporting things that you care about and it doesn't matter who it is it doesn't matter if it's me or or somebody else but like you know buy those books and 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 don't just wait until it's a not 199 sale i mean that that author is not going to get anything out of it that's all i wanted to say so i love audiobooks most of them are non-fiction but i have to say the last one that i really really enjoyed uh, was a, f- a book of fiction. It's actually a teen book, but I I like those every once in a while. I have to say, and it it's a book called Everything Everything by Nicola Yoon, and it's read by my absolute favorite narrator on Audible, Bonnie Turpin. So for those of you who might know the Help, for example, 
she's one of those characters. So yeah, you might check that book out or any other book. You know what? It doesn't matter. Just if you want to go and if you want to help me out a little bit, you can go through strengthsphoenix.com slash audible. That's A-U-D-I-B-L-E. And if you decide to check it out, even if you just check it out, you get your free book, even if you decide afterwards that it's not for you, that has still already helped me to, you know, cover a little bit off the cost of this podcast. If not, you know, that's cool as well, but consider supporting anyone who does something that you value. And that would, of course, also include our wonderful Maria Sirua. All right, so talk to you soon and goodbye. Thanks for listening to the Positive Psychology Podcast. We're saying goodbye with Happy Yogurt.